Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing non overlapping magisteria. The biologist Stephen Jay Gould expressed an unpopular view of science and religion that he's become associated with called non overlapping magisteria, or NOMA for short. NOMA tries to reconcile the conflicts between religion and science by placing the two in separate, non overlapping domains. Quote, Science tries to document the factual character of the natural world and develop theories that coordinate and explain these facts. Religion, on the other hand, operates in the equally important but utterly different realm of human purposes, meanings, and values. End quote. After hearing that view expressed, many people key in on the purposes, meanings, and values part and want to discuss science's relationship to those phenomena. The main reason NOMA fails is less because of science's relationship to meaning and purpose than religion's relationship to the natural world. Quote, documenting the factual character of the natural world and developing theories that coordinate and explain these facts. That's how Stephen Jay Gould describes science's domain, but religion clearly tries to do that too. And why wouldn't it? If religion is to be of any value, it has to relate to the real world somehow. If your purposes, meanings, and values are dependent on complete illusions about the natural world, then wouldn't any normal person question those values and purposes? It's quite strange to assert that what exists shouldn't bear on our purpose, meaning, and values. First of all, religion does make factual claims about the nature and history of the universe. But secondly, even on Gould's definition of religion in its domain, there's still a conflict with science. You can't practically separate what exists and how you live your life. You can't disentangle ontology and ethics, what is and how you should live. If Allah actually does exist, that changes what makes sense to do. If you're rational, your behavior would change. If the afterlife is the way evangelicals believe it is, evangelizing does make sense. If Yahweh actually exists and Allah does not, following Yahweh's rules makes a lot more sense than following Allah's rules. Religious authorities, texts, traditions, and communities determine at least some of the beliefs of nearly everyone. Beliefs cause behavior and religion is a major source of our beliefs and these influences contribute to everything from the political climate to artistic trends. The actions of religious people are, as religious scholar William Gruen puts it, often rooted in religious ideals or their worldview. Different religious groups imagine the world differently, and that affects how they respond to contemporary concerns. Contemporary discourse in America, both in the public domain and academia, is often quick to posit that these stories are really about politics, power, social standing, and the like. End quote. Unfortunately, many don't seem to understand the motivational power of religion. In fact, it appears that many don't believe religion ever motivates human action. I think this attitude is detrimental to any attempt to make sense of human behavior or society at large. If you ignore religion, you're bound to be confused. Of course, religion isn't all there is, it's one causal factor in a web of influences that shape the world before us, but whether we like it or not, Gruen says, Individuals and communities are inspired by their religious identities to take action in the world. This is not irrationality on their part. What's true bears on how you should behave. Personally, I think Gould's view is what happens when you spend too much time in an ivory tower. Here's something that Gould wrote that, if true, hints at his insulation. Quote, 
I am often asked whether I ever encounter creationism as a live issue among my Harvard undergraduate students. I reply that only once in nearly 30 years of teaching did I experience such an incident. End quote. According to the latest Pew data, only one-third of U.S. adults accept naturalistic evolution, in other words, the scientific account of human origins. Depending on how you present the questions, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent are full-blooded creationists, and something like half of U.S. adults believe in God-guided evolution or some version of intelligent design. Only 33 percent of U.S. adults believe what 98 percent of scientists believe about evolution. As I mentioned, these stats can fluctuate depending on how you ask the questions, but keep in mind, Gould was teaching and writing decades ago, when these numbers were even more dismal. He might be lying, but imagine if it's true that only one student in 30 years openly embraced creationism. That would mean that Gould, for decades, was only interacting with a wildly unrepresentative sample of the population, and then drawing conclusions about the conflict between science and religion. Most atheists and most religious people take issue with the Noma principle. To honestly believe that religion makes no factual claims about science or history is to be completely out of touch with most religious people. You would have to think the resurrection of Jesus was not taken as literal by most Christians. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also... Let me do something I've never done before and cite an entry on Conservapedia. Quote, to embrace Noma would be to consign the entirety of scripture to metaphor and storytelling. End quote. It would be great if religious people didn't make factual claims about history, the universe, the origin of species, human nature, and so on. But they do. And when they do, it's not a perversion of religion. It is religion. The Noma view isn't just out of touch with what religion actually is in the wild and how it's actually practiced, but it's utterly ahistorical. Try explaining Noma to Socrates as he's being executed, or Copernicus, whose book wasn't removed from the Catholic Church's index of prohibited books until 1838, or Galileo, who the Catholic Church didn't admit was right until 1992. And this is from New Scientist after the news broke. Quote, In 1633, the Inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church forced Galileo, one of the founders of modern science, to recant his theory that the Earth moves around the Sun. Under threat of torture, Facing his inquisitors, Galileo recanted, but as he left the courtroom, he is said to have muttered, all the same, it moves. Last week, 359 years later, the church finally agreed. At a ceremony in Rome, before the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, Pope John Paul II officially declared that Galileo was right. The committee decided the Inquisition had acted in good faith, but was wrong. End quote. To paraphrase Christopher Hitchens, you'll notice that the Catholic Church can never seem to give an apology in the right tone of voice. A few years ago, I took some classes at my local community college. On the first day of my introductory biology classes, I was expecting my professors to directly address evolution since this is the U.S., and my hopes weren't exactly high for the same reason. But nothing could have prepared me for the pathetic, sheepish pandering they offered. Between my lab and lecture, my professors spent nearly an hour talking about evolution in an apologetic tone, as if they were sorry that it happened and was so well supported. My professors then asserted that science and religion were non-overlapping magisteria, science can't test the supernatural realm, so of course it's perfectly reasonable to be religious, and even, I kid you not, believe that God guided evolution. They didn't teach intelligent design during the semester, obviously, but they told us it was perfectly fine to believe. One, because of the Noma principle, 
and two, because science can never prove anything correct. So you don't even have to believe in evolution if you don't want to. So they used Noma to assure religious people that their beliefs are perfectly reasonable, and to cast doubt on evolution by natural selection by regurgitating some philosophy of science that they half understood. I couldn't help pointing out that if there really wasn't a conflict, they wouldn't be forced to spend time addressing it in class. They weren't discussing the non-conflict between religion and sports, or religion and business, and yet we were spending class time discussing the supposed non-conflict between religion and science. No one is upset with Harry Potter for its lack of historical and scientific accuracy. However, if Harry Potter readers began to assert that Dumbledore was a historical figure, Ron Weasley guided human evolution, Hogwarts was a real place, and Harry telepathically communicates to them his infallible opinions on marriage, gene editing, abortion, church-state separation, and a laundry list of other issues, then the magisteria would no longer be non-overlapping and we would have a problem. My teachers insisted that science can't measure the supernatural world, and that was a reason why science couldn't falsify religious claims about how the universe works. And though I agree science can't directly measure the supernatural world by definition, it can indirectly measure it. The crux of the argument is this. The observable, natural world would look different depending on the existence or non-existence of a theistic supernatural world. The claim is not that we can empirically measure the supernatural world, or empirically measure all things that might exist in some sense. We can indirectly measure the supernatural world because the natural world would be observably different according to its influence. The only assumption is that the supernatural interacts with and affects the natural. This would be the case for any form of theism. No religious person thinks that the supernatural is just sitting there, inert, with no effect on the natural world. Non-overlapping magisteria effectively turns God and the supernatural generally into Carl Sagan's garage-dwelling dragon. We can't observe the supernatural by definition, but if God intervenes, performs miracles, influences evolution, answers prayers, inspires books, raises someone from the dead, communicates with people, and so on, in other words, theism, then we can indirectly measure the supernatural because it changes the way the natural behaves. Strict adherence to Noma would have to hold religious beliefs that would make no predictions, have no observable effects, and have no substantial influence over our lives. If you want to assert that there's an unfalsifiable realm that has no interaction or influence on the natural world whatsoever, then have at it. I don't believe there is one because it's unnecessary to explain anything, there's no evidence for it, and the universe where it does exist, and the universe where it doesn't exist, look exactly the same. But if religious people pray, expecting God to hear them, teach their children that biology is an atheist hoax, believe that God intervenes in life, or hold any other mainstream traditional religious views, they should have just as much of a problem with Noma as I do, and many of them actually do. But even those who consciously reject Noma are pretty selective in their rejection. It's yet another example of religious people wanting it both ways. Richard Dawkins is hopelessly naive for thinking science can tell us something about the God hypothesis, but also theism is supported by science. They don't want to point the unforgiving light of science and reason on their sacred beliefs, but they also want to claim the natural world is different according to their beliefs, and theism explains what we observe. Sometimes people will say, you know, we can't definitively prove things one way or the other, and some of them are even saying it in good faith. If that is the case, though, there are still probabilities we can work out. Not being able to prove slash disprove something beyond the shadow of a doubt doesn't mean the likelihood is 50-50. In other words, both positions are equally reasonable to hold. It certainly doesn't mean that anything goes. Let's build two models, examine the data, and use Bayesian reasoning to help us decide which of our two models best explain what we observe. 
We'll call our two models naturalism and supernaturalism. Under naturalism, there is only one world, the natural world, and under naturalism, all our books are of merely human origin, the mind is what the brain does, there are no angels, gods, or ghosts, and all religions are natural phenomena. Under supernaturalism, there are other things in addition to the physical, natural world. Sure, humans are made of atoms, but they also have an immaterial soul, a non-physical substance that's separate from their brains. Some minds are disembodied and aren't attached to anything at all, like gods, angels, or ghosts. Under supernaturalism, prayer can alter physical events in the world, and some of our books were the product of an omniscient mind. Under both of these models, the natural world exists. However, the natural world looks more than slightly different under the model of supernaturalism. Under naturalism, the power of prayer should be entirely limited to the power of a placebo. Under supernaturalism, we would expect prayer to have an extra effect, at least some of the time. Scientific studies on intercessory prayer have demonstrated time and time again that the effect of prayer is usually non-existent and occasionally negative if the subjects know they're being prayed for. Supernaturalists tend to be substance dualists and claim that we have an immaterial soul in addition to our physical body, or as Sean Carroll describes it, an ill-defined metaphysical substance that interacts with the atoms in our brains in a way that has thus far eluded every controlled experiment ever performed in the history of science. Under naturalism, we would expect our personalities to change if our brains are injured, if we're tired, or if we're under the influence of drugs. This is because the mind is ultimately physical, and should therefore be affected by physical changes. Damage the brain, damage the mind. Turn off the brain, turn off the mind. Sever the nerves connecting the brain in your right hand, you'll no longer be able to move your right hand. While if you're a substance dualist, there's no reason you shouldn't still be able to move your hand, since it's your soul moving the physical material around anyway. On substance dualism, our minds can physically move matter around. They're moving the atoms in your brain. So why can't it reach outside your brain and move some other matter? Not just a hand with severed nerves, but external objects. To believe in substance dualism is already to believe in telekinesis, when your mind can move matter, so why don't we see clearer examples of it? Under supernaturalism, some of the books we have on our shelves may be written or inspired by an omniscient author. We would expect one or all of the world's holy books to contain nothing but true and interesting information. We would not expect our holy books to make absurd errors and basic knowledge about the world, whether it's about the age of the universe or when camels were domesticated. We would at least expect the book to be internally consistent, but neither the Bible, Quran, or the Book of Mormon begin to meet the most modest expectations for a book supposedly inspired by an omniscient being. Imagine how good the Bible would be if God actually had something to do with it. What would you expect the Bible to look like if the contents were produced by an omniscient mind? What kind of book would you write if you knew literally everything? Would you fill it with page after page of contradictions, basic scientific errors, absurdities, promotion of slavery, and detail how to kill your daughter if she's not a virgin on her wedding night? Imagine if the opposite were true. Imagine if the Bible contained brilliant insights into mathematics, infallible and clear instructions regarding the ideal civilization, planted the seeds of modern medicine, and was entirely scientifically accurate. Imagine that souls from the afterlife continually visited us and were documented frequently and consistently gave us interesting and true knowledge. Imagine if you could look under a microscope and the cracker had different physical properties than it had before, after the priest declared it to be the literal body of Jesus. Imagine that Catholic prayers healed patients faster and we had hundreds of videos of limbs regrowing and other miracles. Would believers still maintain that science in the natural world had nothing to say about religion? As Richard Dawkins writes in The God Delusion, quote, 
Imagine by some remarkable set of circumstances that forensic archaeologists unearthed DNA evidence to show that Jesus really did lack a biological father. Can you imagine religious apologists shrugging their shoulders and saying anything remotely like the following? Who cares? Scientific evidence is completely irrelevant to theological questions. Wrong magisterium. We're concerned only with ultimate questions and with moral values. Neither DNA nor any other scientific evidence could ever have any bearing on the matter, one way or the other. The very idea is a joke. You can bet your boots that the scientific evidence, if any were to turn up, would be seized upon and trumpeted to the skies. Noma is popular only because there is no evidence to favor the God hypothesis. End quote. Noma in practice is entirely one-sided. When you try to talk about personhood or consciousness in the context of abortion, stem cell research, or gene editing, religion has no problem throwing Noma to the wind. Even setting aside the resurrection, evolution, the age of the earth, and camel history, believers make all kinds of claims about how the natural world would be without a god. Some claim that life wouldn't exist without a god. Humans wouldn't exist. Morality wouldn't exist. Consciousness wouldn't exist. Some go as far to claim that math and logic wouldn't exist without God, which I literally cannot imagine. Go ahead and describe a universe where logic doesn't apply. Many believers even claim that God is the reason there is something at all rather than nothing. Noma is a one-way street for religious people. If anyone tries to go the other way, they're guilty of scientism. Many apologists and defenders of Noma accuse their critics of scientism the view that science is the only way of knowing something, or that we should look to the sciences for questions that are beyond their scope, or that we should denigrate the legitimacy and value of non-scientific fields. Honestly, the conversation around scientism is very sloppy, and also very heated. No one seems to agree what scientism means, and it's only ever really used as a pejorative. There may be a legitimate conversation to be had, but so much hinges on how science is defined by the parties involved, and the context in which the insult is being used, that it's not worth going into here. In the context of a religious discussion, scientism is an all-purpose, wild-card smear, as Dan Dennett puts it. The crucial point is that attacking religious knowledge is not equivalent to saying there is only scientific knowledge, or that science is the only worthwhile discipline. Accusing someone of scientism because they're asking for evidence, or pointing to evidence that you're wrong, is just a diversion from the main point. Religious knowledge is untrustworthy because religious ways of knowing are fundamentally flawed. But of course, they just want you to admit that science isn't the only path to knowledge, so they can claim that their god fits in that little pocket where science either can't reach or hasn't yet reached. But conceding that there are things quote-unquote outside of science, whatever that means, again, a lot hinges on the parties involved in their definition of science, it doesn't mean that whatever isn't in science's domain is therefore in religion's domain. We could limit the scope of science, and that wouldn't necessarily grant anything to religion just like limiting the scope of chemistry wouldn't necessarily grant something to alchemy. The reason the analogy is valid is because science and religion are both trying to explain what's going on in this universe. Religions are failed sciences, to quote Sam Harris. Conceding that science isn't the only path to knowledge, or that the conversation about meaning, values, and purpose is for other branches of philosophy, does not mean that religious beliefs suddenly become probable or rational to hold which is why the focus of the conversation should be on religion and religious epistemology, rather than the scope of science. And besides, to argue that an empirical study of the world can at least help with questions of values and meaning is perfectly fine. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's impossible to fully separate meaning, morality, and purpose from facts about the world and what exists. What is and what matters are questions that you can't disentangle. 
Even someone angrily hurling accusations of scientism would have to admit that science has a lot to say about what's true and what exists, even if not everyone agrees that it can say what matters. I'm not sure where I come down on that, but the fact is that what exists and what matters are connected somehow. And this is why I think Noma is incorrect, even on its own terms, even if religious people adhered to the principle, which they do not. When Noma is invoked by apologists, it's to accuse their opponents of scientism and to ignore scientific knowledge that's inconvenient for them. The intent of Noma was to placate religious people, defend religion from reality, and to assure the religious that their ideas are just as good as scientists. But Noma is a liability in its function, because it legitimizes religious knowledge and religious authority. But contrary to Gould's intention, this doesn't pacify religious maniacs who are trying to undermine science at every turn. Instead, it gives them a free pass to undermine science. The well-meaning, good-faith intent of Noma was and is to make sure religion wouldn't interfere with science. But accepting the idea arms religion with a weapon that it brandishes when it inevitably starts making claims about what exists and how we should all behave. What Noma means in practice is that evidence can't prove them wrong, and they don't need evidence to be right. This is a reading from Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World, entitled The Dragon in My Garage. I cited this thought experiment briefly in the Divine Hiddenness episode, and the clip is about four minutes, so settle in, but it's well worth hearing the whole thing. A fire-breathing dragon lives in my garage. Suppose I seriously make such an assertion to you. Surely you'd want to check it out, see for yourself. Show me, you'd say. I lead you to my garage. You look inside and see a ladder, empty paint cans, an old tricycle, but no dragon. Where's the dragon? you ask. Oh, she's right here, I reply, waving vaguely. I neglected to mention that she's an invisible dragon. You propose spreading flour on the floor of the garage to capture the dragon's footprints. Good idea, I say, but this dragon floats in the air. Then you'll use an infrared sensor to detect the invisible fire. Good idea, but the invisible fire is also heatless. You'll spray paint the dragon and make her visible. Good idea, except she's an incorporeal dragon and paint won't stick. And so on. I counter every physical test you propose with a special explanation of why it won't work. Now, what's the difference between an invisible, incorporeal, floating dragon who spits heatless fire and no dragon at all? If there's no way to disprove my contention, no conceivable experiment that would count against it, what does it mean to say that my dragon exists? Your inability to invalidate my hypothesis is not at all the same thing as proving it is true. Claims that cannot be tested, assertions immune to disproof are veridically worthless, whatever value they may have in inspiring us or in exciting our sense of wonder. What I'm asking you to do comes down to believing in the absence of evidence on my say-so. The only thing you've really learned from my insistence that there's a dragon in my garage is that something funny is going on inside my head. You'd wonder, if no physical tests apply, what convinced me. The possibility that it was a dream or a hallucination would certainly enter your mind. But then why am I taking it so seriously? Maybe I need help. At the least, maybe I've seriously underestimated human fallibility. Now another scenario. Suppose it's not just me. 
Suppose that several people of your acquaintance, including people who you're pretty sure don't know each other, all tell you they have dragons in their garages. But in every case, the evidence is maddeningly elusive. All of us admit we're disturbed at being gripped by so odd a conviction, so ill-supported by the physical evidence. None of us is a lunatic. We speculate about what it would mean if invisible dragons were really hiding out in garages all over the world, with us humans just catching on. I'd rather it not be true, I tell you. But maybe all those ancient European and Chinese myths about dragons weren't myths after all. Gratifyingly, some dragon-sized footprints in the flower are now reported. But they're never made when a skeptic is looking. An alternative explanation presents itself. On close examination, it seems clear that the footprints could have been faked. Another dragon enthusiast shows up with a burnt finger and attributes it to a rare physical manifestation of the dragon's fiery breath. But again, other possibilities exist. We understand that there are other ways to burn fingers besides the breath of invisible dragons. Such evidence, no matter how important the dragon advocates consider it, is far from compelling. Once again, the only sensible approach is tentatively to reject the dragon hypothesis, to be open to future data, and to wonder what the cause might be that so many apparently sane and sober people share the same strange delusion. Noma effectively turns God, and the supernatural generally, into one big garage-dwelling dragon. If we take Noma seriously, the supernatural has no observable qualities. We can't directly measure the supernatural any more than we can measure the garage-dwelling dragon, but as you can see, that's a reason for rejecting the dragon, not accepting it. That a hypothesis is unfalsifiable is a reason to be skeptical of it. But if God intervenes, performs miracles, guides evolution, dictates books, resurrects his son, communicates through prayer, and is involved with humanity or this world in any way, in other words, theism, then it's no longer an unfalsifiable hypothesis, strictly speaking, and it's possible to disprove it. Depending on how specific you're willing to get with your conception of God and your religious worldview, you can disprove God's existence, at least specific conceptions of God. And of course, that's when complex ad hoc reasoning comes in, theology and apologetics, which keep the God hypothesis functionally unfalsifiable. Strict adherence to the non-overlapping magisteria view, however, would have to hold religious beliefs that make no predictions, have no observable effects on the natural world, and have no substantial influence over our lives. Imagine if science played a similar card here. Imagine that a few of the things science has produced began to conflict with empirical data. These developments are surprising to everyone, and as time goes on, more and more evidence that these ideas were flat-out wrong continues to accumulate. But when confronted with this mounting evidence, some of the champions of those ideas, rather than moving where the evidence led, instead claimed that those ideas were still correct, just not in the world we see. It's not that the ideas were wrong, they accurately describe another realm that we can't observe. And pretty much the only characteristic of this other realm is that you can't observe it. The only religious people who play that game in particular are the sophisticated ones. The unsophisticated ones, the literalists and creationists, believe their religion gives them accurate historical and scientific information. And yes, they are very, very wrong. But it's different, and I would argue better. Claiming that real science wouldn't conflict with religion is far more honest and consistent than claiming that science and religion are non-overlapping, 
At least fundamentalists admit that they shouldn't expect science to conflict with religion, whereas adherents to Noma admit no such thing. I can remember hearing religious friends and family say, if it were real science, it wouldn't contradict the Bible. This I can live with, because for one, it recognizes the overlapping of science and religion. And two, it doesn't fundamentally question the validity of science. They're accepting that science is a trustworthy source of accurate information about reality. That's why it has to be on their side. They could instead reject science as a valid source of information and question science more fundamentally. And some do, but most claim that real science wouldn't contradict the Bible. Gould and his defenders, on the other hand, say science can't contradict the Bible. Not really. Which is simply not true for several reasons. The Bible makes claims about the natural world, unless you're willing to consign all of scripture to metaphor and storytelling. And even then, it would still be making claims about ethics. If it's making ethical claims, claims about how we should live, it's implicitly making factual claims about how the world is. Claims about human psychology, sociology, what will happen if we do X or don't do Y, and so on. But we don't even have to go there, because essentially all religious worldviews plainly entail facts about the world. While it's absolutely true that we disagree, the two sides of the debate, we have things that are very, very important that should be clarified upon which we have very, very different points of view, it's also true that we come here for similar reasons. We share concerns. We're asking the same kinds of questions. What is the fundamental nature of reality? What is humankind's role in the cosmos? Having said that, Religion and science have gone their separate ways over the years. 500 years ago, this debate would not have been held. There was no demarcation between what we would now call science and what we would call religion. There was just attempts to understand the world. And what happened is that science came about by developing techniques, methodologies for gaining reliable knowledge about the world. And the reliable knowledge that we got was incompatible with some of the presuppositions of religious belief. The basic the thing that we learned by doing science for 400 years is something called naturalism. The idea that there is only one reality, that there are not separate planes of the natural and the supernatural, that there is only one material existence and we are part of the universe, we do not stand outside of it in any way. If you go to any university physics department, listen to the talks they give or the papers they write, Go to any biology department, go to any neuroscience department, any philosophy department, people whose professional job it is to explain the world, to come up with explanatory frameworks that match what we see. No one mentions God. The debate is over. We've come to a conclusion. Naturalism has won. There's never an appeal to a supernatural realm by people whose job it is to explain what happens in the world. Everyone knows that the naturalist explanations are the ones that work. If you go to a medical institution, you won't be diagnosed with demonic possession. Climatologists don't factor in God's wrath, and neither do geologists studying the movement of tectonic plates. Biologists don't try to take advantage of Christians' imperviousness to snake venom. Economists don't factor the supernatural effects of tithing into their models. The only reason those ideas sound like a joke is because naturalism has already won in practice. I'm sure some misguided but well-meaning people embrace Noma as the least aggressive, most middle-of-the-road approach that signifies that you don't hate religion, but you also accept science. You can be as nice or diplomatic as you want, it doesn't change the fact that the ideas produced by religion are in a zero-sum conflict with scientific ideas. Science keeps accidentally corroding the religious worldview and supporting naturalism. It's not science's fault religion got so many questions wrong. If religion were true, there would be no conflict between science and religion.
They're both making claims about reality and how it works. Claims that are incompatible. And not just about spiritual reality, but the physical, material world. And diplomacy doesn't change how religious people wield the Noma principle as a weapon against science or modern morality. They accept the principle when it's convenient to them, and reject it the next moment when it's not. My biology professors were mistaken when they claimed science had nothing to say about the supernatural world. Of course, they probably already know this. They were simply pandering to the religious and anti-intellectual lunacy of the students and parents. Only about one-third of the U.S. accepts the scientific picture of our origins, while somewhere between one-fifth and one-third believe in a literal creation myth from thousands of years ago, and the remaining one-third to one-half believe in one or another version of intelligent design. If my teachers actually believed that science and religion were non-overlapping, they could have made the same preachments but directed at the creationism-slash-ID proponents in the room who reject Noma by treading on the territory of science. Instead, they cast doubt on what 98% of scientists believe about evolution and the findings of science generally. They gave permission to their classes to believe in intelligent design, since science can't measure the supernatural, and thus can't prove a creator didn't have something to do with evolution. That's how Noma was in fact used, in practice, in the classroom. What does supernatural mean, anyway? What is the distinction between the natural and the supernatural? They're both part of reality. And what's the distinction between the natural and the supernatural from our perspective? Like I said, they both exist, and they both have an influence over our everyday experience. You and I are conscious creatures that take in data through the senses, and that's the only real connection we have to external reality. And as far as we're concerned, there is no difference between natural and supernatural. They both exist, they're both part of reality, and they both influence the data we take in through our senses. Supernatural just means that we can't prove it wrong and it doesn't have to make any sense. It doesn't have to live up to classical measures of probability, like parsimony. Both the supernatural and the natural are perceptible, but if we put an idea in the supernatural category, it doesn't have to live up to any standards. Really, the religious magisterium is just a group of beliefs about the natural world that they call supernatural and that we're therefore not allowed to criticize. It's a made-up category the sole purpose of which is to protect ideas from lack of supporting evidence and evidence to the contrary. But what about Gould's mention of purposes, meanings, and values? I still don't grant those phenomena to religion, not because they're obviously in the realm of science, but because they're not unique to religion. It's not as if those things can only be accessed through religious means. Gould said religion deals with, quote, the realm of human purposes, meanings, and values. But religion is not a synonym for those things. Religion is a lot more than a purpose-giving institution. It also makes claims about what exists, how things work, and what has happened in the past. And crucially, it's not the only way, or the best way even, to explore purpose and morality. It certainly hasn't provided us with the most fruitful conversations on those topics historically. The best conversations about purpose and morality don't include violence, for one. And even if we bracket the way religion has behaved until five seconds ago, just read their books. Just read the Quran or the New Testament. Is that everything you need to know? Is there nothing else to be said about purpose, meaning, and value? To say that meaning and morality can come from religion is one thing, but to say that their religion's domain or religion's magisterium is incorrect and even insulting. Religion is not the source of purpose, meaning, morality, or values. It's a source of those things. It's not the source. Some people get some of their morals from religion. For example, anyone who thinks it's wrong to flip a light switch on Saturday or that it's good to mutilate their child's genitals at birth, is definitely getting that idea from religion, and no place else. But that just means that some of our morality comes from religion, not all of it. And there's no guarantee it'll be a good idea. 
And again, not everyone draws from that particular source. In addition to bestowing us with moral wisdom, religion also traffics in factual claims about the natural world in areas that overtly trespass on the territory of sciences like biology, geology, physics, cosmology, psychology, as well as history and many other subjects. And it's important to remind everyone that religion doesn't have a monopoly on purpose, meaning, and values. I'm an atheist and I have all those things. They exist within the natural world, it turns out. They don't come from the source I thought they did when I was 14, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. In some sense, they are clearly real and a part of being human. Religion still has power and authority over most people, whether they've consented to it or not. And the ones who have consented to religion's power and authority have done so under false pretenses. The tortured, fallacious concept of Noma is probably going to maintain some level of popularity because, for most people, it's hard to tell religious people that they're wrong and that their ideas are stupid. In my professor's case, you don't want to bring the wrath of students and parents on your head, so you lie like a coward and tell them intelligent design is perfectly okay, before proceeding to teach actual biology for the entire semester with no further reference to intelligent design. I would add that teachers and professors have more of an obligation to tell the truth about their field since they're taking on the role of an authority on that subject. Noma is a defensive maneuver that was taken for sociological reasons, namely that religion has been losing the argument on a thousand fronts, but still has power, facing pressure from the unrelenting progress of science and from failure after failure on the part of religion. Some tried to take a conciliatory, feeble, centrist approach to try to procure an existence for religion in the modern world. The Noma principle fails on its own terms in addition to being out of touch with religion as it's actually practiced, and it also provides religion with a bludgeon to use against science, which it does so happily whenever it's convenient. It might sound like I'm being too harsh, but when we're examining the middling solution Noma proposes, we shouldn't forget the context in which this discussion about religion and reason takes place. To quote Stephen Fry, After thousands of years of supremacy, suppression, and censorship, the champions of religion managed to transform themselves miraculously into victims of cruel verbal abuse, snobbish bullying, and intellectual persecution. It is against such a background that this conversation takes place. That's all I have for you today. I'd like to thank all my patrons and my patron hall of fame, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you'd still like to be demonized by virtually every facet of mainstream culture, you can find me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.